called the message a poor man's psalm or a psalm for poor people. We took that from verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So this psalm is typically divided into two halves. David gives his personal testimony with regard to God's deliverance. And then he gives a personal teaching. or We call it personal training he's going to do. So in the first half, verses 1 through 10, we saw him magnify the Lord and invite us to magnify God with him for that deliverance. He remembered God's deliverance when he came to King Achish. He comes with Goliath's sword. He comes to Goliath's king. He comes having killed thousands of Philistines and thinking perhaps that they will not recognize him, and they do. And so he plays the madman. He scrabbles on the doors and lets spittle roll down his beard. And God miraculously, not through David's ingenuity, but by His grace, He delivers David. David flees to the cave of Adullam. He's still in trouble. He is alone. No one is with him. And it is believed he wrote this psalm. He magnifies God. He remembers God. And then he assures others in the last portion of the first section that we too can experience this same deliverance. Now, in verse 11, he's going to turn and be our personal trainer. What is a personal trainer? Someone that leads, instructs, and motivates you in physical exercise. Some of you may have such a personal trainer. David here is going to be our spiritual trainer. He's going to lead, instruct, and motivate us in the spiritual exercises, three in particular, beginning in verse 11. The fear of the Lord, which he's already mentioned. Secondly, the formula to this fear. And then thirdly, the future you can expect if you fear God. Verse 11. Come, ye children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. First, he makes an invitation to the children, which I'd like to do this morning as well. Children, listen to me. As we listen to David, which means we're listening to God. Sometimes it may be easy to overlook children here, but I assure you, I don't want to overlook you. Anytime we talk to parents, we're talking to children. And sometimes, and many times, the God directs His words to you children specifically. When God says, you fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, He's saying to the children, come under that nurture and admonition. But then he specifically says in the same context, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and your days may be long upon the earth. That's right out of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. So God speaks to you specifically, so I want to do so this morning, but we know David is not exclusively addressing children. He's addressing all, but he says, come children. Because in the next verse he says, what man is he? So he's talking to both young and old, but addresses children. Now children, I am not the first responder when it comes to your training. Your parents are. But you see, the book of Proverbs essentially deals with that issue when it comes to the fear of the Lord and your relationship with your parents. As your pastor, I want to help. I want to assist. I want to use God's Word to equip all of us in being parents that God calls us to be, our single people in all our relationships. But your parents are the first responders. And so listen again to Proverbs 1-7, as we heard read this morning. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The word beginning there is not a word that means start with it and then leave it. It's a controlling principle. The fear of the Lord is to knowledge what the fundamentals of shooting a basketball is to the NBA, right? You don't leave that. Or if you do, you don't win. You stay with it all the way to the big league, right? The fear of the Lord is to knowledge what the ABCs are to reading the Odyssey, which I think some of you are probably going to have to read this year, right? Homer's Odyssey. If you leave the phonics and the ABCs, you don't read it. You never get there. The fear of the Lord is to knowledge what adding and subtracting single-digit numbers is to calculus. If you leave that behind, you don't do calculus. The fear of the Lord is the controlling principle to knowledge, to living, to life. Now, what is the fear of the Lord in that context? And that's what David is addressing here in Psalm 34. He gives us the fear of the Lord by noting its counterpart. But fools disregard, despise. That's an emotional word. They have no regard for what they should take account of, namely the fear of God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord then, we look at the counterpart, is to despise wisdom and instruction. must mean to humbly come under the wisdom and the instruction of God. It's to bend yourself under God's instruction, God's wisdom, which the New Testament tells us it's the gospel of God. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He's the power of God. But a fool an arrogant, a proud person despises it. What happens in a culture when a culture despises the fear of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord and the wisdom of the Lord? Then the man himself becomes the measure of wisdom. He himself becomes the measure of his own instruction. And then you have the chaos unfolding in our society. Everything's out of balance and chaotic. Because every man's own desires and pleasures is defining the measure of what's wise and it's affirmed, it's exalted, and if you're against it, you are persecuted. The individual becomes the standard for his own wisdom and his own instruction because he despises the fear of God. Now children, the next verse addresses you specifically. My son, hear the instruction of a father and forsake not the law of your mother. Receive it. Receive the instruction of your father. Hear it. Embrace it. And be resolved not to forsake the law of your mother because according to Proverbs, this instruction, this law is the wisdom of God. So what that means, parents, you should be teaching your children the fear of God. You should be putting it in their hearts. Say, wait a minute, how can you do that? Remember Mark chapter 4 when Jesus gives us the parable of the soils? He would say, the the seed that fell by the wayside are those that hear the word of God, and they understand it not, and the devil come and snatches the way that was what? Sown in their hearts. Even when unbelievers hear the Word of God, it is sown in their hearts. It is God that enlightens and illuminates and brings the understanding. But parents, give your children the fear of God. Understand what that means. 
and give them the Bible. The Bible is about the fear of God. Now why should you want that, children? Because they shall be an ornament of grace on your head and a chain about your neck. Some of you may be thinking, yeah, I know about those chains. You know, the kind that smother you and choke you. No, that's a necklace. And it's a pendant. It's, it's something on your head that beautifies. Proverbs 4.9 calls it a crown of glory. A crown of glory. You know the difference in a, in a fool and a person that's wearing a crown of glory or a necklace that beautifies? Who would you rather spend time with an arrogant, self-conceited, self-serving, self-loving person or a person that's peaceable, kind, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy, full of good fruits, without hypocrisy? That's the wisdom, according to James, it's from above. The wisdom of Proverbs is the wisdom of a person. And as we come under the reading of that person through our parents and through the preached Word, that person rubs off on us and we find grace, which means favor with God and man. You become an attraction to God through this this necklace and this crown of glory, which is truth. It's the fear of God. But fools despise it. And they reject it. So children, as David says, come ye children, listen unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Listen as the word of God is preached. Listen to the instruction of your father, which presupposes fathers, you are giving them instruction. And mothers, you are giving them the word of God, the law of God, which brings them, we trust, to Christ. Because it's their schoolmaster and ours. Give them the fear of the Lord and teach them what that means. So what is it, David? You invite the children, you speak to us. David now is going to turn to the formula for the fear of the Lord, beginning in verse 12, and he will ask two rhetorical questions and then give a purpose statement in conclusion in one verse. That's verse 12. So come, ye children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Here it is. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Question mark. Two rhetorical questions because we know the answer. And the purpose statement is to see good. We know the answer, don't we? It's a universal answer. Everyone. Everyone without question, desires to live the good life. So you can insert good in the first two parts of those questions. That he may experience good. What is good? You desire to live the good life. And you love living many, not bad days, but good days. And we demonstrate every single day that we are wired to live that way, don't we? What you eat or what you want to eat. The kind of clothes you want to wear or that you do wear. The kind of job you want. The kind of money you want to make. The kind of entertainment you want to see. The kind of music you want to listen to. The kind of apps you want to download. 
the kind of vacations you want to take, the kind of travel you want to do, the kind of friends you want to have. On and on and on, every day we demonstrate the reality of this verse. We want, we desire, we want to love life and see many good days. Just to illustrate that this is a universal principle, I want to read from an unbeliever who defines the good life. And listen how strikingly close it is to the Bible, but how so far away it is. He would say, living the good life means living a life that sets you free. A life that satisfies and fulfills you. Wouldn't you agree with that? That adds happiness, joy, and a sense of purpose to your life. Does anybody want to live without purpose? But it also means to live a life that is worthwhile. A life that makes a contribution. Instead of being solely self-centered, that's biblical, isn't it? The good life is a life that is not primarily wasted with mundane activities. Instead, it adds value and contributes to making this world a better place. That would be loving others. Even more so, it also contributes to your own growth. The attainment of a high standard of living alone might not fully fulfill and will definitely not set you free. Therefore, the good life combines aspects of exploration, self-mastery, and civic responsibility with the endeavor to spend your time in a worthwhile manner that both satisfies and fulfills. It is only through the combination of these aspects that a joyous and happy life can be truly considered the good life. Well, that's pretty spot on, isn't it? Except for one thing. The fear of the Lord is absent. Self-exploration, self-mastery, civic responsibility without God will leave you absolutely empty. Now what I want to emphasize first here is that the fear of the Lord does not contradict a good life. You need to understand that. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean you don't desire to live and you don't desire good days and you don't love or want many good days, which means to delight and have pleasure in. That is so critical because we think of the fear of the Lord as a straitjacket. Yeah, you know, when you start reading the Bible, you get pinned in, you get the chain around the neck, not the necklace, and you you just can't have any joy in life. God is after your fulfillment and a good life as it relates to the fear of the Lord. And without Him, beloved, you will never live it, not in this life or the next. So children, listen to what God is saying to us. So here's the formula. Your ears should be peaked right now because you know you want this life. You know you want to live the good life. You know from your birth you've demonstrated it every day. Even this last week you, you went after it in whatever way and however much money you have and whatever opportunities you have, you have gone after a good life. Here it is. Here's the formula. It's A plus B plus C equals a good life. Here it is. Number one, control your speech. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips speak no guile. Control your speech. That's A. Plus B. Stop doing evil. Start doing good. Be departing from evil. Be doing good. Live a transformed life with your behavior. That's B. Now here's C. Seek peace and run after it with other people. 
Pursue means to persecute it. It means to go after it with passion. All right, here's the formula. Control your speech. Be departing from evil. Be doing good. Seek peace and pursue it. And the equal sign means what? The good life. Now David has his work cut out for him, doesn't he? There's a whole host of questions that you may be thinking right now. Are you serious? How can that be? Is David real? Does he know what kind of world we live in? Notice he does not give one item of what you possess, what you own, where you vacation, how much money you have, who your friends are, what kind of apps you have, where you get to travel. Now remember, David is speaking about the good life and he's not living the good life as we define it. He's in a cave. He's on the run. He's somewhere between Judea and Philistia. And Saul is out to get him. Achish just ran him off. Nobody's with him yet. He is alone in a cave. And he says, this is the good life. Before he ever gets to the palace. This is the good life. Now, beloved, let me say here also that this is where faith kicks in, isn't it? Are you going to take God at His word? Are you going to believe what God says? Are you going to despise His wisdom and His instruction? I think I know a little better than God here. As somebody might verbalize, yeah, when they're confronted with sin. I think God's wrong here. I don't think He knows really about my life. I really don't think He knows what I want. Oh, yes, He does. And that's the problem. You were created and wired to seek the good life. But we have been rewired by sin. So sin turns us squarely on ourselves. So that we seek the good life in everything but God. And your, your own life, to some degree, is a testimony of that reality. Just think about the pitfalls, the temptations, the sins that we have committed. And really what the aim was, what really you were after. You just wanted to experience some pleasure and fulfillment. And where did it bring you? Brokenness. Guilt. So there's the formula. So now we want David to tell us, David, how, how do we get there? Now there's going to be a connection here in this formula with verses 12, 13 and 14 with verses 15 and 16. So here's the next two verses which I think give the explanation. So if this is the formula, what is kind of the root of that? Verse 13 or verse uh, 15. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. So David as our personal trainer is going to motivate us with the formula by motivating us as it relates to the anatomy of God. His eyes, His ears, and His face. His face is for or His face is against. And this encompasses everything 
that will yield the good life. Now what I want to do is turn to 1 Peter, because Peter, in a similar context, is going to quote this psalm, and he makes a more clear connection with the two ideas, the formula, and the eyes, the ears, and the face of God in 1 Peter chapter 3. And the context is similar because David is in trouble. David is experiencing afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord is delivering them out of them all. And we know in 1 Peter, there are afflictions. There's persecution. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, is going to insert this quote from Psalm 34 to remind the suffering saints where the good life is found and why. That's what we want to know. How is that the good life? You may object. I don't, I don't get it. Just my lips and, and my, my actions and my passions of, for peace. So Peter is concluding this first section of his epistle in verse 8. He says, finally, I'm in 1 Peter 3 verse 8. Finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, which means tender, be courteous, be humble. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, which means to benefit others. Why should you do that? Knowing, participle, that ye are thereunto called effectually that you should inherit a blessing. Now the quote. For he that will love life and see good days, let him Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil. Let him depart from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because, you see, Peter gives us some more purpose statements. It's implied there in Psalm 34. Because the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, his ears are open to their prayers, and the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That's why Peter says we want to be motivated to live according to this formula, which is the fear of God. That's what David says. This is the fear of God. This is the good life. Here's the motivation. It's the Lord's eyes, His ears, and His face. Now it's worth pointing out the context of Peter here in drawing this conclusion finally in verse 8. He begins in chapter 2, verse 11 with this section and he calls on the saints to live a beautiful life. He would say, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust that are warring against the soul. Having your conversation beautiful or honest. The word honest there is coloss, which means beautiful to look at. And when you find something beautiful to look at, right? Like your wife or the person you want to marry, you are attracted to it. Like you're attracted to a beautiful landscape, a beautiful sunset. So we've got to abstain from fleshly desires that war at the level of the soul so we can have our behavior, excuse me, our behavior attractive among the Gentiles or nations. So that when they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall see, glorify God in the day of visitation. God gets glory out of people that attract attention to that glory by the lifestyle they live only by refraining from fleshly lusts. Now, Peter 
obviously could be talking about all kinds of unlawful desires and even lawful ones that morph into idolatry. But I want to show you he's got one specifically in mind. Retaliation. Chapter 2. For Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should walk in his steps. Who when he reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed it to him that judges righteously. And then the one we read, 1 Peter 3, 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. Don't retaliate. So this beautiful, attractive life as a Christian that attracts glory to God is not retaliating, but doing the opposite, which is what? Submission to government. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man, whether the king is supreme or governor sent by the king. Submission to bad masters. Servants, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but to the bad and the froward. Submit yourselves to your bosses. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. If they will not obey the word, they may by your chaste conversation, which they shall see, be converted. And then not to leave your husbands out. Likewise, husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, as another weaker vessel giving honor. How do you honor your wife? By knowledge. You don't just know her. You know what she thinks. You know what her ideas are. You know how she would counsel in this situation. You know how she would advise that decision to be made. And you listen. She has a voice. And you listen. You listen. Because men, it's, it's easy for us to be the leaders to just dismiss. Because we know we're the, we're the leader, right? So Peter's talking about relationships. Don't retaliate towards government. Don't retaliate towards your boss. Don't retaliate towards your husband. Don't retaliate towards your wife by dismissing. That's attractive. That's beautiful. That is kelos, is the Greek word. Finally, brothers, you see how Peter's bringing it, not to the end of the letter, but into this section. Finally, Live this way. Don't retaliate, but bless. Bless, which means to benefit, do good. It is the echoing of Matthew 5.44 when Jesus says, But I say unto you, love ye your enemies, bless them that curse you. There's the word bless. Do good to them that persecute you. What does it mean to love your enemies? Bless them, do good, pray for them that despitefully use you. So Peter says here, rather than retaliate, that's easy, that's default, that's what I know how to do. You give a word to me, I'll give it back. You cut me down, guess what? You push me, I'm pushing back. A beautiful life is one where God is exalted. His grace is exalted. And He's empowering us to bless people. How does this happen, Peter? knowing that you were hereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. Now, to inherit a blessing is to inherit a gift. And the blessing that we've been called to is eternal life. So the blessing of eternal life empowers the blessing of others. This is why Peter brings in Psalm 34. What is this blessing, Peter? It's the blessing of a good life that you can now be living in persecution. 
It's the blessing of a good life that you can now be living in your trouble. Because the blessing that you've inherited is God. Isn't that his point? It's the eyes of the Lord over you, and it's His ears open to your cry. It's the face of God on your behalf. It's the face of God for you. That's the motivation that produces the formula. The formula doesn't produce God's favor, God's grace. But the blessing of being called out of darkness into His marvelous light, the light of knowing God, the light of trusting God, the light of loving God, is the empowerment to live in your trouble, in your affliction, in a way that blesses others. The ones that are harming you. The ones that are speaking evil of you. And of course, you know that doesn't discount authority and and legal matters and law. But there's a principle here Peter's after. It's the attitude of the soul that sees God in a certain way that then empowers us to live the formula of the good life. So the good life, according to Peter and David, is a life lived in relationship with God. Now listen to how the words David uses to tell us that. First he would say, and we'll look at the negative side of these two statements, The implication, the eyes and the ears of the Lord are for us, but then the negative side, the face of the Lord is against some people. Why do you want to fear God and live by this formula? Because the face of the Lord is against all those who don't fear Him. And that's designed to motivate us. By way of illustration, every time I go to the beach, without question, every time, I'm in the water about waist deep. I look out over the ocean. I see no land for miles. I have a strange mind, I'll just admit. Every time the thought comes to me, what if I'm in the middle of the ocean treading water? What if I'm thrown in the middle of the ocean and I'm treading water? Literally. Sometimes I think my children have seen me do this. They say, Dad, what's going on? Literally I go, <laughs> I tremble. You should tremble at that text. The face of the Lord is against those who do not fear Him and do not come under His Word. You should tremble. What's He going to do? He's going to cut off the remembrance of them and obliterate them forever. That should cause us to go, but a fool won't do that. Now the fear of the Lord is to trust God Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in Him. We learned in the song. It's to treasure God. The young lions do hunger and suffer want, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. You seek Him as a treasure, and then those that tremble at God. So the trembling must be coupled with a trusting and a treasuring. All right, let's go back to the beach, right? You like the beach? I'm standing waist deep in the water. I look out over the, over the ocean, and I tremble. Now, I'm in the same ocean. I'm in the ocean that I'm fearing. What's my experience on the shore? Man, I'm living it up. This is the good life. And the waves come in, they pounce me, I get up, wipe the water off, I'm laughing, people are laughing at me. I look out, I tremble. I'm waist deep. I'm enjoying the same ocean that I'm afraid of. The fear of the Lord is always coupled with a trembling of the warnings of God 
but a laughter and a joy that I'm in the safe part of the ocean. Now, I'm the kind of dad, ask my children, I'm like, oh, wait, wait, get back, get back, you're going too far out. I don't like it when I see people on rafters going out, it's, it seems way out in the ocean. See, that's what the fear of the Lord will do for you. What's the warning? Look, if you go out and you're going to tread water in the middle of the ocean, and that's where you love to be, and that's the good life, guess what? You are going to perish forever. If you just go live out there, that, that's where you want to be. I'm just going to live out in the middle of the ocean. People perish out there. It looks like they're experiencing the good life. It looks like they're loving many days. But they will be cut down and cut off. What sane person would say that's the good life? Are you being duped? Children, listen to me. Are you blind? Awaken to righteousness and the fear of God. And enjoy the beach. I mean, live it up in the water. Look out there and tremble. And be glad you're on the shoreline with Christ. And that'll keep you from running out into the, to the deep where there's sharks and whales. I mean, that, I shudder at that, being swallowed by a whale. Friends, I would rather be eaten a million times over by sharks to experience the wrath of God for eternity. I mean, rip my body apart. So the negative side, David says, which is healthy and good, is that the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. That's why you want to live this life. Is it not? But that fear is coupled with a treasuring, a trusting, a joy. Remember, the fear of the Lord does not contradict a good life with many good Days. Now that's the negative. Let's look at the positive. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Here's the motivation. First of all, the relationship. Righteous. That can be a wonderful word. Righteous. His eyes are over the righteous, which we know does not mean, well, David just controlled his speech enough and he did enough good and departed from enough evil and he really sought peace enough that he could be right with God. That's not the Bible message. That's not the Christian message, is it? The righteous are those that Jesus gave his life to make us right with God. And what is the aim of a right relationship? Have you ever asked that question? Why, why, why would God want me to be in a right relationship. I'll tell you, the good life. Do you believe it? Are you going to rely on your own wisdom to think you can chart the course for the good life? He died to make us right, to bring us into His presence so that we could have that satisfying, fulfilling life. Psalm 17 tells us in the 15th verse. As for me, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. Why, David? I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Why did God send His Son to make us right by imputation? So that we could be satisfied in God and live the truly good life. The problem, the problem is you don't believe Him. You don't believe Him. And your life proves it. In your relationship with the Word of God in your relationship with prayer, 
in your relationship with church? I don't really believe Him, do I? This is where we say to God, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are so weak, aren't we? I mean, I'm the first to raise my hand. Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to take you for what you say and to believe it and to rest in it and to know that you're all wise and to know that you sent Jesus to bear the wrath so that I would not be cut off forever, but that I would have your eyes over me and your ears hearing. What a privilege. Why would God, friend, hear you? Isn't that crazy? Why would He want to hear you? Because you're united to His Son. And you have God's name upon you, His righteousness. And bizarre as it may sound, He really does love you. Isn't that amazing? And He really, truly wants you to live the good life. But you don't believe Him. You don't believe Him. Oh, that we would believe Him. The formula indicates you do believe Him. Because the formula grows out of a right relationship with God. See? How could you ever control your speech? I can't do that. A right relationship with Jesus. How could I ever depart from evil? It's so easy to be tempted. A right relationship with Jesus. How could I ever pursue peace with people that hate me and my enemies? With the gospel. A right relationship with Jesus Christ brings the good life. Because the good life is not the formula, right? The good life is being with Jesus that then results in sanctification, holiness, and all the words of the Bible, which means faith is producing fruit in our lives because the Holy Spirit has invaded us and opened our eyes to the treasure of Jesus Christ. So it's a right relationship. Now this right relationship, he says he's over us. So now the providential care of God, right? How does this good life happen? Because God is using all of His power and His sovereignty to bring it about. Now look at the words that speak of this. In verse 17, The righteous cry and the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all their troubles. God's sovereignty, His eyes are over you for good to deliver you. Verse 18, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and He's saving such that be of a contrite spirit. Verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Now what I'm saying is that God is doing this in His sovereignty, delivering and saving to give you the good life. See, we think the good life happens... When you're out of the affliction, when it's over. I mean, who can live a good life in trouble with many afflictions? Now remember David writes this when the trouble's not over. And so how do we live in the affliction and the trouble? We are miserable. We are complaining. We just want the good life back, which is not the good life at all, is it? It's like 911 or or COVID-19. People come into the church and they pray and say, Lord... In essence, give us the good life back. God's just a genie in a bottle. You know, we know you have the power to give us a good life, and the good life is give me my car back, my job back, my phone back, and all the things I want. And then I'll call you if I need you. 
David is using participles to point out something that I think is significant. Look, he's saying the Lord is delivering you present tense out of all your troubles, which means the deliverance is coming before you ever get out of the trouble. He's delivering. He's saving. He's delivering. How is God delivering you in the trouble? Because the deliverance and saving are delivering you out of the affliction while you're in the affliction. In other words, God is bringing something out of the affliction while you're in the affliction that's going to bring you the good life. I think that's what David is saying with the participle. He didn't say, he will deliver you out of all uh, trouble one day. Right now, you know, just do the best you can. He is now delivering you out of that affliction. He's delivering. He's bringing something out of the affliction. And what is it? The good life. The good life. What is it he's bringing out? I think verse 18, he's bringing a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Now that can mean sometimes because of sin, we know Psalm 51 verse 17, David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you won't despise. He, sh- he sinned with that Bathsheba, right? But the context here seems to mean the brokenness and the contrition is because of the trouble and the affliction, not because of a, a known sin. These words mean to be crushed, to be wrecked, to be broken down. I like to think of a car broken down on the side of the road. You ever had a car like that? It can be humiliating sometimes, especially if you've got steam coming out on the engine and you know people are thinking, doesn't that guy know how to check his oil? Or, or they see you putting gas in the gas tank, you want to hide your face? Does he not know how to check the, the gauge? Right? Hope I'm not the only one to run out of gas. What's the first thing you do when you have a broken, wrecked car? You cry out for someone. Maybe if it's a, a wreck, a car wreck, you may call with tears. Or you call and say, I, I need some help. I've, I got a flat tire and I don't have a spare or the engine's smoking. I don't know what to do. Can, can you come for help? God is willing to do anything and everything to give you the good life. And the good life, according to the psalm, is a a poor man. It's a broken, contrite person that's broken down. And God in His providence is going to bring you trouble and affliction to bring you down so that you can look up. Have you ever noticed the connection with verse 12 in Romans 8.28? Verse 12, that he may see good. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those that love God and who are called according to His purpose. The good life happens when the good God is working everything to contribute to your good, which is the good life, which is the plan of salvation. To make you like the only human being that's ever really genuinely lived the good life. Would you agree with that? 
There's only one human being on the planet that's ever existed that truly, perfectly lived the good life, and it's Jesus Christ. And oh, how fulfilling it was and satisfying, and He had nothing. And oh, how unfulfilling and unsatisfying the man who had everything lived named Solomon. Isn't that a contradiction? Isn't that a paradox? He had everything that you will never have. You'll never have what he had. I don't care how rich you get. You'll never have it. And he was empty and miserable as an old man. And the man that had nothing was absolutely satisfied with the love of God. God will stop at nothing to bring you the good life. And what you need is, is, is trouble and afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Well, how can you experience the good life if many of your days are filled with affliction? Because the affliction is the aim of God to bring out of the affliction a deliverance that brings you to God. And here's the proof. Verse 18, The Lord is near all those with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Well, how did He get there? He's not near proud people. So God... In His providential care, His welfare, His eyes are over you for good. He brings you through the storm of affliction and trouble. And in your brokenness, you cry out and you turn and Jesus is there. He's there. The word near, one nuance is to be allied with. It means to be united to join with someone with a common purpose. What is that common purpose? Well, God's purpose is His glory. And His glory is going to shine forth through poor, bankrupt, broken, contrite, needy people. This is a psalm for poor people. Do you qualify? See, the motivation for this formula is not just to go do this. It is a relationship with God where His eyes are providentially over us and His presence is with us and everything that God is doing in our lives is working toward the good life by bringing us to greater bankruptcy so that we can experience the good life and love many days, whether it's raining or whether the sun is shining, because it's not about just getting out of the affliction, which one day will happen, won't it? Gloriously, all afflictions and all troubles will cease. But until then, the Lord is bringing you good days, even in a cave. The good life, even in a storm. Because the good God, His eyes, His ears, His providence, He's near. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such that be of a contrite spirit. Let's just hear from David real quick his own testimony of the good life while he's in this cave. Psalm 63. He's in the wilderness. Verse 1, O God, You are my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see Your power and your glory. So as I've seen in the sanctuary, verse 3 of Psalm 63, 
Because your loving kindness, your steadfast love is better than life. Can you say that? Well, affliction is designed to where we're going to say that more and more. My lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness in my lips. My mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. Verse 7, because thou hast been my help, therefore, in the shadow of thy wings while I rejoice. Now note that. Because I cried to you when I was broken down on the side of the road, and you were my help. Therefore, under the shadow of your wings, I'm rejoicing. I'm experiencing the good life. Where is David? He's in the cave. What's he experiencing? The good life. How? In relation to the sovereign God who loved him and gave himself for him, in relation to the presence of God who's close. You're under the shadow of wings. You're close. The chick is close to the mother hen. Listen to what one man says concerning this commitment of God to bring you the good life. God has given us the only thing that will rescue, restore, and save us. He's saving us out of all affliction, right? He's given us the only thing that will rescue, restore, and save us. He's given us Himself. He's given us Himself. That's all Jesus had was God. In His grace, He invades our situations, locations, and relationships. He comes near with power we don't possess, wisdom we don't have, and love that is unlike anything we've ever experienced. He is willing and determined to let you see how weak you really are so you can begin to see and seek what you can only find in Him. In church, what is that? The good life. The good life. So David motivates us with the fear of the Lord that causes us to tremble. But then that's coupled with the fear of the Lord that causes us to rejoice. His eyes, his ears, his face, his attention, his welfare is centered on his people because he is centered upon his glory. And he's drawing us into that glory And He's delivering us out of the affliction while we're in the affliction so we can experience more of the closeness of God. Now what can we expect in closing? What is the future we can expect? He keepeth all His bones and not one of them is broken. That's a reference in John 19.36 to the fulfillment of prophecy with Jesus. When the soldier came to Him and was about to break His legs, He was already dead. The other two... Criminals were legs were broken. It hastens death. Now the psalm is referring to the messianic prophecy, but also to the righteous in the psalm. Is the Bible saying too much? I mean, raise your hand if you ever had a broken bone, right? I think it's two things about Jesus. One is it's showing that no man took his life from him. You know, they didn't break his legs. He took his own life. But secondly, a reference to the bones in the Bible speaks of the resurrection. Joseph commanded concerning his bones that they would take his bones with them because God would visit them and resurrect them out of this dark land into the land of Canaan. It's as if God is saying, keeping Jesus' bones whole, He's guaranteeing the resurrection. And so He took those very bones and whatever decay had taken place in the human body and resurrected it. Bones, flesh, Humanity, which God Himself 
is going to do for all those who trust Him, relate to Him by faith, and then are trying to live out this formula. Not to get a right relationship with God, because it's been freely given to us by grace. And what is the end of the resurrection? Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The two nuances there are desolate and guilty or condemned. They are both valid. Translators here chose desolate. Some of the other translations chose condemned or guilty. Because a condemned person is going to be desolate. Totally, totally empty. No vestige of a good life. No fulfillment. No satisfaction. None forever. They will be absolutely empty because they're guilty. Now what future can you expect? The Lord redeemeth. Notice the present tense participle. He is redeeming the soul of His servants that fear Him. And none of them, none of them, not one, will be lost. That trust in Him, neither shall they be desolate. You won't be condemned. You won't be guilty of your sin. Because Jesus paid it all. And because you're not condemned, because you're right and have a right standing with God, and the way you live it is giving some evidence of that, because you have His righteousness, what does that mean? Oh, you're not going to be desolate. You won't be empty. But the love of God is going to so fill you for eternity that you're going to be so satisfied, you're not going to know what hit you. Listen to me, children. Don't buy into the lie that 80 years of your own life of pleasure is better than an eternity with God. Enjoying the pleasures at His right hand. Enjoy forevermore. How? By putting your trust in Him and following Jesus. We bid you do that now. Come to Him. In fact, I'll meet you at the front of the podium. Make your profession known. Follow Jesus in faith and baptism. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to us, your mercy. Lord, we do tremble in your presence. We think of the warnings that you give in the Bible that those that are against you, that don't love you, that don't fear you, you're going to cut off their remembrance. Lord, may that grip us in a good way. May we believe that's true. May it keep us from swimming out to the middle of the ocean because it seems like people are having such a good life there. When we know in your wisdom they are not, they're empty and they will remain empty no matter what they have and what they own. And Lord, help us to say safely in the the waters of joy, seaside, in in the glorious waves of grace, grace upon grace upon grace through Jesus. And help us abide there under the shadow of your wings, knowing that your eyes are over us, your ears are open to our cry, and your Your afflictions you bring us are designed not to harm us. In all our afflictions you are afflicted, your word says. And you redeem us and save us and carry us all the day long. You're so close that you aim to carry us all the way to glory. May this give us comfort and strength. And may we fear you and live according to the formula by living in relation to you. And make this this sermon, Lord, this word a reality for us today as we walk out of here. We would not forget this until next Sunday, but this would press upon our minds and hearts. Whether we've known Jesus for a long time or a short time or don't know Him, 
May you open eyes and may we come to faith in you and trust you and follow you and know you promise the good life on your terms and your timing that lasts forever and ever. We thank you, Lord. We exalt you. We praise you. We love you. We thank you that you've saved us by grace and you're saving us and that our worst could never save us, that you've brought us to yourself. And may we rest in the future expectation of glory where you'll deliver on